Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. We are back. It's Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis, and we're going to go to Washington to talk to our friend Bob Ney, as we do every Friday. And, Bob, we have breaking news. Let me get to it. The International Court of Justice has just ruled against Israel and determined that the country of South Africa has successfully argued that Israel's conduct plausibly could constitute genocide. So could you tell us more about that and what it means? Well, yes, uh, Kevin, there's two things. First, to the ICJ ruling, uh, it is a preliminary ruling, but uh, it's a ruling that Israel obviously didn't want. Now, the court uh, will now impose several injunctions against Israel, and the court reminds Israel and the world that the rulings of this court are binding, and that's according to all accepted international law. But the uh, ruling eventually now will go to the United Nations Security Council. But overall, this is a, an extremely big blow to Israel's global standing. I can guarantee you within Israel, which is a, a democracy, uh, you know, the, the, the greatest democracy existing in the Middle East, but it is a democracy where things are going to be hotly debated. This week alone, there were some extremely damaging articles against Bibi Netanyahu internally in Israel by hostages, families, and by his own, um, uh, what we would call, I guess, the minister of war. So Netanyahu's been weak anyway uh, in the last couple of weeks in particular. Now with this, of course, the European Union will and historically has gone along with this. So the European Union will not go against this. Now, the second part of this is the United States, and uh, Joe Biden, as president, is going to be walking a tightrope, because if Biden goes against this measure at the Security Council and vetoes it, we will have broken our precedent of respecting the United Nations uh, International Court. We've done it with Syria in the past, the Ukraine and other countries where we have went along with it. The other thing politically for Biden is if he vetoes this, I promise you the progressive vote for Biden will tank incredibly in the United States You know, during this, this election because he's already in, in trouble with that. The other thing that's going to happen to the United States is this. We are going to be viewed uh, that that President Biden has done every single thing Netanyahu has wanted without exception and very mild behind the scenes uh, uh, statements to Netanyahu. And I bring that up because there's one thing to supporting Israel. Of course, we will as a country. But there's another to doing everything Netanyahu has asked him to do when internally in Israel Kevin, the Israelis have a large dispute and a lot of questions back and forth. This is not where Netanyahu is solidly down the line with all Israelis. So it's a big ruling, but also it has huge implications because of President Biden's uh, past uh, situation here since October 
when this all began. Bob, could we stick with the sticky situation this poses for the United States? I happened to uh, mm-hmm. happened upon a, a video of the State Department spokesperson uh, yesterday or today uh, discussing this, and boy, he was tying himself and in, in himself in all sorts of knots uh, about whether or not the United States was going to support whatever's coming out of the court. Mm-hmm. Well, I. I uh... You know, I've been observing State Department, uh, you know, points of view uh, for quite a few years, both as a member of Congress and now working with, you know, in the uh, reporting mechanisms that I've done in the last 15 years. I have never in my life seen a State Department spokesperson that over this issue, and you used it best, has tied himself in knots continuously. And they and one of the reasons he's reacted as he has, they were anticipating this potentially could happen. And they really, right now, I promise you within the White House, they are arguing back and forth as to where this goes. So I think he was doing a major dance trying to, you know, basically go with a gut instinct of where we're going and really not knowing where we're going, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And and it leads to your other point about uh, the clear concern in the Biden campaign about uh, the loss of young voters. I see it in my own family. You you just you you see it in these demonstrations in favor against Israel and in favor of the Palestinians. Uh, you, You just and you say to these kids, well, if you're a if you're a Democrat, don't you want Biden to win? And they, they say, now they may come home, but they'd say, often say, uh, no, I'd rather, I'd rather him lose because he's, he's just, uh, just damaged goods here supporting Israel. And mm-hmm. I don't know, our, our political mm-hmm. system's a lot different today than it was, than it was, you know, when we were young voters, you and me. Well, yes. And you know, Kevin, um, when I attended the 2000, 16 Republican and Democrat national conventions for talk media news at the time. I uh, went ahead and linked up with some conservatives in the Republican side in, in the Democrat convention. I interviewed tons of progressives because, look, that's where it was at at the time. Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren versus Joe Biden, right? And when the convention ended, I kept following on Instagram, et cetera, you know, these progressive young Democrats. And the reason I'm mentioning this is I have followed them. Eh, They were okay. They were basically all right with Biden. A few things, you know, they didn't like. I must say of what I have seen in the last two months, uh, I think Donald Trump has treated Joe Biden nicer than some of the people that are progressives that I followed because they're coming right out and just saying the same thing you're hearing, which is, you know, uh, they they don't care if he loses, and as much as they can't stand Donald Trump, quote maybe he needs taught a lesson is what a lot of them are saying on their social media posts. And now let's go to Trump if we could, Bob. Um, I I I couldn't help but see his Truth Social uh, post recently about Nikki Haley, uh, who is sticking who is sticking with her presidential race despite losing the New Hampshire primary. Uh, uh, Trump 
is really out there with his language. Uh, Haley being an Indian American uh, whose parents immigrated here. Uh, Trump is giving her a nickname, uh, two nicknames, Nimba, which I haven't really figured out the etymology of that, but it must be critical. And then he's calling her bird brain. This is even for Trump, it seems to me, uh, almost another level. And again, uh, we've been asking ourselves since since 2016, you got to wonder whether this helps him uh, in a general election campaign. What's your what's your make of it? Well, actually, by the way, NIMBA uh, is the name of a nature cure, and it's been in uh, Ayurvedic therapy, you know, uses in India. And um, I, I don't know where he, who, you know, whispered that in his ear, you know, to to do it. Um, and of course, you know, he's dovetailing on, you know, her name, her actual uh, name, which was uh, Nimarada. Nikki Randawa is her uh, was her actual birth name, and uh, and she went by Nikki Haley, you know, all of her life because her middle name is Nikki. But uh, her parents came from the Punjab in India, where I stay, actually within a half hour from where her her parents are, are from when I come to India. And uh, one number one, the Republican Party needs to be proud to have the first. Indian American governor of South Carolina. And I think the Republicans need to be proud when they have people of different ethnic backgrounds that choose to run for president. And I think in this case, and I know Trump's made fun of a lot of people, but she was his ambassador to the United Nations. And now he historically does what he does, which is to call her a bird brain. You know, she's she's an educated woman. Her parents came to this country. They worked hard. Her parents came legally to the United States and she was born here because he's insinuating, you know, almost like a birther issue that she doesn't have the legal right to be, you know, running for president. But on this one, even Trump has moments where he goes too far. And on this one, he is going simply too far against Nikki Haley. Uh, just degrading her all he can. And I had said this uh, earlier this week on some stations that I do that, you know, she's not necessarily going to jump out of this, even if she loses South Carolina in particular, because you never know what's going to happen in this race. Now, he's a presumptive nominee. I understand that. But if you look at the statistics coming out of New Hampshire and the fact that one third of the Republicans say they won't vote for him, him trashing Nikki Haley at this point in time, I don't think this is to his benefit. And uh, and again, I know he's gotten away with a lot of things he said over the years. But I believe with this race and the closeness it's going to be, this isn't benefiting him in any stretch of the imagination. Okay. Well, that and more uh, from Bob Nay. Thank you very much for everything, D.C., Bob, and we'll we'll see you again next Friday. Okay, thank you, Kevin. We are back, and we're talking now about a new program in Chittenden County meant to curb local, uh, sorry, low-level property crimes, typically carried out by people trying to make money to feed drug addictions. It's called Incentives for Success. It's the brainchild of Chittenden Prosecutor Sarah George, and uh, we our guest. Colin Flanders from Seven Days 
newspaper and website is here to discuss it with us. Colin, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Colin, as a, at the same time that Governor Scott is starting to say we may have gone too far on on uh, keeping people out of jail and diverting them, uh, Sarah George ups the ante and uh, starts this new program. Why don't you tell us what it what it means? Yeah, so so Sarah George said she started looking into this program last year as she found her, her office, like many others around the state dealing with a tremendous backlog of uh, cases, and in particular, uh, low-level property crimes. We're talking about um, shoplifting, sometimes car thefts, um, things that weren't rising to the level of being serious enough for them to prioritize given the amount of cases that were pending against them. Um, And so Sarah uh, knew about this nonprofit uh, organization in New York City that likes to partner with uh, offices like hers, prosecutors, uh, and local organizations to look at different ways to divert cases outside of the criminal justice system in a way to cut down on the number of people who are incarcerating. And you're totally right. We are in this moment now where some of the criminal justice reforms we passed uh, two, three, four years ago, um, the, the, the sentiment among the public is sort of changing on those. And that's because we are seeing more of these crimes um, as the drug crisis worsens. So Sarah's idea here was, can I find a way to get people the help they need, uh, to make them be accountable to something um, while working outside of the system that right now is so clogged that chances are most of these people aren't going to get their cases heard within the next two, three, four, even sometimes six months. Um, And that really just leaves them out there on their own, uh, often committing more crimes, ending up back in court. It's a never-ending cycle. Um, So she sent out an email to police chiefs asking for a list of their top offenders. She used that to compile her own list, and then she started working through that uh, with the nonprofit she is to enroll people into this new program. And how many people are involved in the program, and how many have been uh, put into the program? So far, there has been nine people referred into the program, and the hope is that over this year, 2024, they will work 50 people in total through. Uh, the, the nine people who have been referred so far, they represent a combined 99 misdemeanors and 14 felony charges. And the thinking is that this program through the, the year, the next year, could help resolve more than 500 cases, um, which is a pretty big number given the fact that uh, there are nearly 3,000 pending cases in Chittenden County right now alone. And the backlog of that, the, the stuff that's really been delayed, is almost as high as 1,000. So this would make a pretty big dent if people were to manage, everybody were to manage to complete the program. Can, Colin, can you talk about, you know, you, you spent a lot of time in Burlington uh, and you write that 300 cars were reported stolen last year compared to 50 in 2019 and that retail theft is is on the rise. Uh, 800 incidents reported last year compared to 320. So and I've heard I've heard uh, talk of people walking by outdoor diners at restaurants and taking food right off their plates. Uh, this is, you know, whether perception or reality, uh, this is happening, and uh, and this program seems to be taking aim at that. Yeah, I mean, the the idea we've heard this in the state house this uh, the last few weeks is 
these retail theft bills come up for consideration aimed at cracking down on low-level offenders who are committing some of these crimes over and over again. Uh, we are hearing that there, there, there feels like there is a bit of a sense of lawlessness in Burlington, that there are people who just don't seem uh, to care about the potential punishments. Um, and so the idea is maybe if we increase those punishments, uh, they'll be less likely to commit crimes. Now, there's a lot of research that suggests that's not really the case, and the ACLU has pointed this out repeatedly. But I think we are, you're right, in this moment where everyone is feeling something has changed. Um, I personally, I mean, it's it's hard to disconnect this from the drug crisis, and we are seeing uh, overdose rates in Burlington through the roof to, to, to once unimaginable heights. Um, both mainly non-fatal overdoses, but also fatal overdoses, and that's across the state as well. Um, the idea behind this program is that uh, a lot of these people, it boils down to they aren't getting their basic needs met uh, for for various reasons. Some people, it's because they're addicted to drugs, and that's ruining their lives in, in many cases. Some people are living on the streets, and so they don't have anywhere to stay. They don't have food to eat. Um, they and so this is a chance to connect them with someone in this program who can help them start to work on those basic things with the idea that maybe if they can get those taken care of, they can start to handle these other uh, the other parts of their lives that are really wreaking havoc right now. And uh, I wonder, uh, Colin, could you talk more specifics for us? So when they're enrolled in this program, they get a case manager. Uh, they even get a little bit of money to get them on their feet. And, and if they uh, meet all the criteria for the program, uh, the charges would be expunged from their record. So where do they actually go? Uh, is there a nonprofit organization that, that is part of this program, or do they do this at the courthouse? How does it actually work? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So it, it is run out of a nonprofit. They're called Vermonters for Criminal Justice Reform. Um, they're based in downtown Burlington. They have a small office uh, where the program is run out of. Um, and they this isn't the only thing they do. They work uh, with a lot of people who are just getting out of prison, who are working their way through the justice system. Um, they they run a different drug program that works similarly to this one. But the way this program works is um, participants receive a weekly reward for simply showing up. Uh, it starts at $12 the first week. It works its way up to $22 by the 12th week. And that figure can be doubled if they test negative for a substance that they've identified as wanting to avoid. So say I'm enrolled in a program. I know that methamphetamine is my big challenge, and I want to reduce my use of that. I would put that down, work with the case manager, and then every week I would come in and test for methamphetamine. If I'm managing to avoid it that week, I get my uh, my weekly participation reward doubled. Uh, it's a, and it's approached based on a drug treatment initiative known as contingency management, which has been proven to help people curb unwanted behaviors and is sort of the gold standard for addressing, in particular, stimulant addictions. Um, but in the, in the case managers, they really say, like, while these incentives are helping encourage people to show up, 
the real work begins when they're there um, at these weekly meetings with case managers, which I always have felt like is a bit of a euphemism, especially here at, at this nonprofit. You see these people at work. They are doing everything imaginable. They are helping people find housing, obtain IDs, sign up for Medicaid, purchase cell phones. They've enrolled people into treatment. They've given people clothing, food. I mean, it's like a one of the participants described it as it's a one-stop shop for everything you could possibly need. Um, and that's really important for a lot of these people who feel like the system, as they try to navigate it, they're bouncing around to one office here, one office there, got to catch the bus. It can be really hard when you don't have things as basic as just like a reliable transportation to get all the things you need to survive. And so the hope here is that you're connecting these people with people who can help them. And that in the long run is more likely to get them back on their feet than say a, a two month prison stay. I wonder, Colin, if you could talk to us about a, a woman named Crystal who is in the program and uh, you write about her as a, as a uh, itinerant shoplifter and all, uh, often in trouble with the, the law. She's been to prison. Um, and uh, it's almost like everybody on Church Street knows who she is uh, because she's there all the time shoplifting. Uh, Sarah George certainly knows who she is. Uh, she's She's gotten another chance in this program, still using drugs. Uh, this is not a perfect story, but it's a story nonetheless. Tell us about Crystal uh, in the minute we have left. Yeah, so she's a longtime stimulant user, and, and you're right. She is kind of infamous among Church Street businesses. And, and, and the way Sarah George described it is we've tried literally everything we, we can do to rehabilitate Crystal. We've sent her to prison. We've tried treatment court, and nothing is working. And, and in George's mind, she was really reluctant at first to refer Crystal to this program because it's an obvious political risk. She could look soft on crime, especially if Crystal flunks out. But she decided that it's worth a shot because at least in this way, Crystal's getting some support services. And, and you're right. It is often not a perfect solution. Crystal, for her part, is still using drugs and doesn't plan to stop using anytime soon, at least in my discussion with her. But she's working really hard to stay out of trouble and is being successful in that so far. And there are many people like her who aren't ready to stop using but still need some connection, still want to be better parts of the community. This is one possible way for her. And the hope is that it'll work because nothing else has. Um, I think I talked to some business uh, people who were like, hey, I mean, it's worth a shot um, because nothing else is working at this point. Okay. Colin Flanders, uh, his story on Incentives for Success. This is a, a new diversion program from Chittenden prosecutor Sarah George, and that's in this week's seven days. Uh, Colin, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Take care. Okay. Uh, you can read that story uh, at 7daysvt.com. Uh, seven Days reporters come on with us every Friday at 10.15, and uh, gosh, they just do such good work over there. This this program is going to be really fascinating to follow and see whether it can put a dent in what is a real problem in Burlington. Uh, you know, homelessness can, combined with drug addiction, drug abuse, uh, leads to the shoplifting and prosecutors like Sarah George and the police, uh, you know, it's a tough, it's just the, the solutions are not easy. So when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, this uh, animal rights group, Protect Our Wildlife, that's filed a lawsuit against uh, the Vermont Fish and Wildlife Department. Uh, their founder and president is going to join us to talk to us about the details. 
Um, I'm Kevin Ellis. You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint, and we'll be right back after these messages. You're listening to WDEV. Welcome back to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. I'm Kevin Ellis. Uh, Recently, a coalition of four wildlife advocacy groups filed a lawsuit in Washington Superior Court against the Department of Fish and Wildlife, that's the state, over new rules for trapping and for hunting coyotes with dogs. Our next guest, Brenna Galdenzi, leads one of those groups. It's called Protect Our Wildlife. They are part of the lawsuit, and she joins us on the line now. Brenna, welcome to the show. Good morning, Kevin. Thank you for having me. Okay. So tell us, you were, you're part of this lawsuit. Uh, why did you file it? What, what is the Fish and Wildlife Department doing wrong? Yeah, I mean, listen, the last thing that, you know, an all-volunteer nonprofit wants to do is spend our resources and our time suing the state agency. Um, but they really left us with no other choice, um, you know, when they very clearly fail legislative mandates and intent and the legislative committee on administrative rules could only do so much, um, you know, someone has to hold them accountable. And uh, that turns out to be us. So uh, could we take a step back here, Brenna, and, and talk about the, the practice of using dogs for hunting in Vermont um, mm-hmm. how does it, it's a, it's a long time practice in hunting. Uh, how does it work? What, you know, why are dogs used and, and what, what happens? This is, you know, this, this has been going on for a long time and suddenly it's, it's page one news. What's going on here? How does it work? Well, I mean, I don't think that, you know, hunting coyotes with packs of, radio collared hounds while the hounder sits in his truck with a GPS device following the hounds, you know, is something that's, you know, a tradition. Um, you know, the, the very act of, you know, sticking a pound, a pack of really powerful dogs, you know, on a coyote not only has very clear animal welfare implications because we've seen videos, we've seen photos. I mean, it's akin to dog fighting. Um, but, Equally important is that it's a clear violation of private property owner rights and public safety. Um, you know, so it really, even if you don't care about coyotes and you don't care about animal welfare, surely there have been a lot of people that have reached out to us saying, you know, a pack of uh, hounds, you know, um, damaged property, uh, harassed, you know, horses. Um, you know, we had one of our members who had uh, a pack of hounds, you know, damage her greenhouse. Um, and when these handlers are nowhere in sight, it leaves landowners with very little protection. Um, you know, there was a woman who was riding uh, her bike with her dog running right alongside her uh, and fairly, I think it was two years ago, and a pack of hounds that were in pursuit of a coyote, you know, ended up putting their sights on her dog and proceeded to maul her dog for, I think, two miles before the hounder showed up and pulled his dogs off. Um, so, you know, this is not the Vermont of, you know, maybe the 1950s where, you know, you're not going to run into conflicts with landowners. I mean, it's a Vermont, whether you like it or not, of the 21st century. 
and, you know, property owner rights matter. And, you know, that's a big part of this, um, in addition to, you know, very clear animal welfare issues where, you know, the hounds themselves end up injured, um, you know, if the coyote turns to, to fight the dogs. Um, and equally concerning, it's not even rooted in sound wildlife management practice. I mean, Vermont Fish and Wildlife admits themselves that, you know, hunting coyotes with or without hounds does nothing to manage their populations. In fact, it actually causes increased populations of coyotes. It also, you know, baiting coyotes brings them into residential areas, causing conflicts with, uh, you know, the community. So, I mean, really, there is not one good reason to continue this practice. Uh, other than, you know, catering to a, a very small, privileged special interest group. Um, but that said, you know, Act 165 that was passed in 2022 was not an outright ban on coyote hounding. It simply required Fish and Wildlife to regulate the practice and meet very clear legislative mandates and intent. And Fish and Wildlife failed to do that. We tried for two years to work with them, um, and we ended up with rules, with a rule that will do little to nothing. Um, you know, to make the public any safer. And same goes for the trapping component of this. Uh, now, thank you for bringing that up. I, I was, that was my next question, which is where does trapping uh, fit into this? We've all seen pictures of uh, coyotes uh, and other animals uh, trapped in those leg hold traps. Uh, we, we, what, where does this play into the lawsuit, if at all? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, a survey that was conducted by the UVM Center for Rural Studies back in 2017, you know, asked Vermonters, you know, would you support a ban on leg hold and body crushing kill traps? Um, and 75% of Vermonters um, said yes, they would support a ban. I mean, so it is not an activity that's supported by most Vermonters. Um, and there was a bill back in 2022 that was an outright ban on leg hold traps. Um, and the committee, uh, the Senate Natural Resources Committee, decided instead of banning leg hold traps outright, that they would give fish and wildlife the opportunity to improve on animal welfare, um, protect the public from traps. Um, and that's when Act 159 was passed, similar to Act 165, that gave the Fish and Wildlife Department an opportunity to truly work with the public, work with the animal advocacy organizations to make some real changes. And again, you know, after two years of working with them, um, we're left with a rule that does not make trapping any more humane, that does not protect the public um, from these traps. Um, and so, again, we're left with having to sue them. Um, and it's not just protect our wildlife that doesn't feel that they, you know, um, upheld the mandates of the act. It's the Legislative Committee on Administrative Rules. They filed four objections with the Secretary of State. Um, so, you know, at this point, what else are you going to do? When Fish and Wildlife was given very clear mandates, they, you know, didn't meet them. And uh, forcing them to do so through a lawsuit is really the only avenue. And we're asking that part of, just to back up, part of Act 165, the coyote hounding piece, uh, requires that a moratorium on coyote hounding be put in effect until Fish and Wildlife was able to meet legislative intent. And Fish and Wildlife has lifted that moratorium. They've already issued permits for coyote hounding. So there's probably people out there right now running their dogs on coyotes. And that moratorium needs to stay in place. And that is what the lawsuit re requests because they have not met legislative intent and mandates of Act 165. So, um, 
that's kind of where we're at right now. And and what are you asking in the lawsuit? Uh, are you are you asking that that the court uh, command the Fish and Wildlife Department to rewrite the rules? Part of the lawsuit requires the moratorium on coyote hounding to remain um, until the department is able to meet legislative intent of Act 2065. And the lawsuit also requires a number of um, changes to trapping to, again, hold them accountable to Act 159, you know, including um, making the public more safe from traps. I mean, just to give you an example, when this whole discussion initially began on trapping, as a compromise, Protect Our Wildlife said, okay, well, let's just prohibit these body-crushing kill traps uh, and and allow them to be used underwater only, right? Because right now you have these traps that will kill, you know, a raccoon, a fox, um, other animals, they're allowed to be set on land. And we said, okay, well, compromise would mean only allow those traps underwater, you know, for beavers. And um, instead, Fish and Wildlife is still allowing these body-crushing kill traps on land. Um, and on certain sets, they're not even required to be set away from uh, areas where the public recreates. So, um, you know, it's just an example of something that really should have been fairly easy for the department to to compromise on, and they were just really intransigent throughout the whole process. Um, and this was really an opportunity. This was their opportunity to clean up the act of trapping, so that you know, you know, th- their objective is you know, they want trapping to remain into the future um, for political reasons. And this was their opportunity to really clean up the act of trapping, and they didn't. I mean, they're calling leg hold traps that slams shut on an animal's limb with tremendous force to be considered humane if that trap has a tiny plastic laminate on it. You know, they're called, you know, padded traps. Um, It's all these euphemisms that are wrapped around trapping that really fools the public, lulls the public into thinking that trapping is more humane. I have one of those, quote, unquote, padded leg hole traps, and I've set that trap off. And imagining my dog or cats in that trap um, is just horrifying to me. Uh, we are going to go to the phones. We have a call uh, from uh, Barbara. Barbara, you're on the show with Brenna Galdenzi. Hi. Hi. Um, my question is, you know, it's a bit frustrating listening about um, Fish and Wildlife Department not being responsive to what Vermonters want, particularly around trapping. They just seem to be very behind the times. And so my question is, how do we get them to be more responsive? Well, I That's think I think yeah. I think filing a lawsuit is is one answer. Uh, Brenna, why don't you take a shot at that question? <laughs> yes, good point, Kevin. That that is that's one answer. Um, you know, the other answer is maybe changing some of their statutory mandates under Title Ten. That is what's guiding the department. You know, making them more representative of the people, requiring them to value. Um, you know, the, the value of, of predators on the landscape, you know, they're still vilified. You know, I mean, Vermont really is no different than out west where they, you know, shoot down wolves from helicopters. I mean, it's the same way that we treat coyotes here in Vermont. So I think updating some of these really regressive statutes uh, under Title 10 that guide the department would be one step. 
Um, but really, I mean, Title 10, 4081, not to get too wonky, I mean, it already requires the commissioner um, to protect the wildlife with a constant and continual vigilance for the people of Vermont. And that's not happening. So maybe that's something we need to pursue in the future, <laughs> is how do we hold the commissioner accountable to that statutory mandate? Um, it's clearly not happening right now. Uh, Barbara, thank you for the call. Uh, we, I think we Barbara hung up, but I, I wanted to ask her a follow-up question. Uh, Brenna, I wonder if we could talk about what's at a root of a lot of this, which is one of the more fascinating issues I like to talk about and think about, which is culture. We, we, we accept the notion in Vermont that Vermont is a hunting culture, it's a fishing culture, uh, it, until now, it's been a trapping culture. And what you're doing is, um, is, is challenging that culture uh, in some way. And I can't help but think that there's, there's a change in the culture that you talked about earlier on in the show about, uh, you know, like it or not, this is a Vermont of the 21st century. Um, yeah. Comment on that, if you would. I really like that question, Kevin, because, you know, there's a lot of disinformation out there, um, a lot. And this has never been about hunting or fishing. We have a lot of rural Vermonters, um, you know, folks from the Northeast Kingdom, seventh generation farmers, hunters who are on our mailing list that despise trapping. Um, so, you know, to think that just because trapping, you know, has been going on for 200 years in Vermont, um, you know, is justification or, you know, a prescription for how we should continue um, in a world where we understand animal suffering. We understand, um, you know, that animals, um, you know, feel pain and fear and all of these things. And that if we are going to subject an animal to that, it better be for a really good reason, not out of an intolerance for predator species, um, not because it's a recreational activity, um, so I don't, I am very sensitive to the cultural aspect of it. And all I can say is that we wouldn't have members who are hunters and anglers and farmers and, um, you know, folks from rural areas of Vermont if, if we were against those things. Um, I think what's really unfortunate is just this disinformation campaign that's being propagated by a lobbyist um, at the state house and throughout the Vermont and social media. And, um, you know, we just received an email yesterday, a really thoughtful email from a hunter and I'm meeting him for coffee next week in Waterbury. Um, and I welcome people to email us, call us 802-253-1592. Let's sit down and have real conversations about what protect our wildlife is and what we're not. And I guarantee you that we can rally behind, you know, science-based wildlife management that promotes ethical hunting, respect for the life taken, and really elevates the image of hunting in general. Because right now, if you're a hunter, some of the stuff that's happening out there is a real big PR disaster for you, <laughs> you know. Um, and, and I think a lot of hunters, and the one that emailed us yesterday, agrees that there's a problem and too many of them are afraid of the slippery slope that if they agree with Powell on this one thing, we're going to come after hunting next. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. Um, okay. You know, I mean, if people eat meat, 
I mean, what, what better way to, to own that than to go out and, and, and hunt your own food? Um, so it's just silly to think that okay. is what our group presents, represents. We want to go to the phones in the few minutes we have left. Uh, Lark, you are on the, on the line with Brenna and me. Welcome to the show. Well, I just want to say um, I commend Protect Our Wildlife and Brenna and the other groups for what they're doing. I personally know a lady in Craftsbury who had hounds that were just running across their property, um, ripped up her greenhouse. Uh, her kids were watching as they mauled a coyote, uh, were traumatized by this. This this activity goes on quite often, and property property rights are ignored. And there are other states that have blue paint laws where it's not on the property owner's uh, obligation to post their land. It's the other way around where um, if you have a blue paint law and you put the blue paint on, then um, you know that you can't, uh, you can't go through there. So I, I don't understand. Um, we are in the 21st century. Um, people do have to adjust to changing times. Uh, trapping, there is absolutely no economic advantage to uh, furs anymore, very, very little economic advantage. So some of it, as far as recreational trapping goes, is just cruel and inhumane. Nobody's trying to stop nuisance trapping or management trapping, but some of these traps are cruel and humane. Uh, everything they're doing, they've tried so hard and other groups have tried so hard to work with Fish and Wildlife, and they just do not seem to want to cooperate. So uh, I just want to commend them and tell them to keep on trying, and the public out here is, is, is going to be on your side. And if you can tell the public anything more we can do to help, please let us know. Thanks for the call. We've got Rod on the line. Rod, yeah, welcome. Rod. You're Hi. on the line with Brenna Galdenzi. Hi, my name is Rod. I'm from Orange County. I'm a landowner. I've uh, hunted for the last 40 years. I'm a bow hunter. And uh, since I've lived in Vermont, I've actually had encounters with hound hunters that have come onto our property. We have our land posted. And uh, it would maybe not have been an issue, but it's happened a couple times. And, and the times that it's happened, it was actually the president of the Vermont Bear Hounders Association. And one of the things that they said was, our dogs can't read signs. And, uh, you know, we're talking about protecting the cultural heritage of Vermonters and hunting, and I believe in that, but the type of hunting that a lot of these hound hunters do today with GPS collars and using their trucks, and now they're talking about wanting to get drones allowed, I think that's the real threat to hunting in this state is these people that are turning our traditions into a more modernized recreational activity that doesn't look anything like what it used to be for those of us who have hunted our whole lives. Thank you. Brenna? Well, I was bracing myself for some uh, <laughs> from some uh, calls that I had to respond to um, that were in opposition to what I'm saying. So it's really good to hear, um, you know, these supportive calls. So I was I was all geared up to have to defend myself. So, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm fine doing. I mean, throw them at me. I agree with the, well, with the last caller. Um, uh, Brenna, tell us, tell us where we, uh, tell the listeners where they can find more information about this lawsuit and more information about Protect Our Wildlife and what you do. Yep, they can find us online at protectour 
wildlifevt.org and call me, 802-253-1592. I will talk to anyone. If you're a trapper, a hounder, um, let's have some real conversations and let's address this disinformation campaign that's uh, causing a lot of unnecessary confusion. Okay. Brenna Galdanzi, she's the founder and president, one of the founders and president of Protect Our Wildlife. And uh, as always, Brenna, it's great to talk to you. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks. Take care. Ladies and gentlemen, that is our show for today. My thanks to all our guests, Brenna Galdanzi, Bob Nay, Colin Flanders, Emily Kornheiser, and Annika Hallwell. Be sure to follow all of them online. Read and buy their stuff. Patronize them so they'll be around in the future when we need them. Remember to join me uh, next week on Wednesday for more guests, more subjects that will challenge us and make us smarter. Um, we're going to talk to uh, author Felicia Cornblue. She's a UVM professor and a leader in the reproductive rights movement. She's got a, a new book out, and we'll talk to her uh, and I think we're going to talk to my friend Rachel Feldman, uh, who is just back from a trip to Israel. And she's all over Twitter, uh, very vocal about the Israeli-Hamas uh, war. And she's just back from Israel, and we're going to get her take on what's going on over there. You can hit me up on Twitter or email me at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Our goal, as you know, is to illuminate and inform and have some fun along the, way, along the way. You can stream the show live or listen later as a podcast at wdevradio.com anytime, anywhere. Find me at kevinkls.com where you can get my weekly newsletter and podcast called Conflict of Interest. Our show is produced by me, engineered, by, made possible by today... Danny McGivrigan, Lee Cattell, and Steve Cormier are there for a few minutes, uh, taking me uh, through the commercials and the breaks. Thanks to all the folks at, uh, at KWMR Community Radio in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks so much for joining us. And I'm Kevin Ellison. We'll see you right back here Wednesday for more discussion of politics and culture in Vermont and beyond. Wherever you are, join us right here on Vermont Viewpoint live radio on WDEV.